0: Welcome to City of God, a podcast of the Center for Public Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Dr. Owen Strand, and I'll be your host. Join us each week as we engage the city of man with the biblical wisdom of the city of God. Welcome to City of God. Today on the podcast, I have my friend Dustin Benj. Dustin is the provost and lecturer in church history at Union School of Theology in Bridgend, Wales, He's a dear friend of mine, a colleague at Reformanda Ministries, uh, a prolific social media user, writer, did his PhD on Jonathan Edwards, and uh, we're going to have a lot to talk through. This is an opportunity for me simply to engage his story, his ministry background, and allow listeners to learn a little bit more about Dustin. Dustin, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Owen. What a pleasure to be with you.
0: Well, it's a pleasure to have you on the—I uh, almost said the show. It's not quite a show. I don't think we can elevate this, this enterprise to show, but to the podcast. <laughs> so thank you for making the time. Of course. So talk to us about, Dustin, what your, what your ministry background is. Did you grow up wanting to be in ministry? You're a, you're a provost at a, at a Welch seminary now. Uh, how did this come to be when you look back?
1: Well, of course, hindsight is always 20-20, isn't it? And uh, we look back, of course, just to simply survey the providence of God in our lives. And little did I know that in God's kind providence that he would be moving both my wife and I to Wales here in just about a month. Mm. And as of this week, one year ago, I began conversations about joining the faculty at Union School of Theology, so it's been a wild ride. Um, hmm. In the midst of pandemic, our flight, uh, our move date has been postponed several times, but God has been very gracious in allowing us to walk through this open door of ministry. But growing up in uh, really a small town in eastern Kentucky, I, I never imagined that that God would do what he has done and I grew up in a small town called London, so it's quite interesting. I tell people when they ask where I'm from that I'm from London, and I don't fill in the Kentucky part <laughs> uh, until they look at me with an odd look because I do not have an English accent but quite a southern accent. Um I have one sister. My parents took us to church just after birth. Uh, I grew up in the church. I was involved in every activity of the church. I often say that I attended Sunday school even before I was born. Hmm. Um, my parents were active members, my grandparents played active roles. I can remember my grandfather leading uh the worship, my mother playing the piano, uh, me sitting beside my grandmother, uh being taught to sit up straight and and uh, be very quiet, um <laughs> lest I would have the wrath of my father who was behind me. Mm-hmm. But at the age of twelve, uh in that atmosphere of church and godliness and the desire to uh, pursue Christian activities and being involved in a youth group. It was after a sermon on a Sunday evening that I became extremely convicted of sin um, Mm. and in need of a Savior, and it was uh, an unbelievable feeling. Uh, Most people would look at my life and say, Uh, you know, how in the world could you recognize sin because you were involved in the church and the church's activities, etc. But it was obvious that I was a sinner and in need of a savior, and all of those works were as nothing uh, before Christ. And so my life after I was saved, baptized, I just basically went back to doing those things I had already done, uh it did not radically shift uh to some sort of new set of principles. There's not a radical testimony here besides that, you know, light dawned in my heart uh at the age of twelve. And then God began to really move in my life in regard to ministry.
0: Mm. Well, that's a lovely testimony. That's really encouraging. You sometimes you sometimes hear today in the evangelical scene in ways that I think both of us will critique on occasion. That if we're going to reach people, if we're going to reach in particular young people, then we've got to really amp things up. Um, mm. Young people are are in too secular a context today. Uh, the the entertainment culture that presses in on them is 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 too big an obstacle. So we've got to kind of match it. You know, we've got to match its firepower in the lives of our. Our children, our youth, or intellectual uh, barriers to the gospel—you know—at the level of high school or college or whatever—are too great. So, so we've got right. to, we've got to really take pains to kind of make the Christian faith reasonable. There, there's different ways that this temptation uh, uh, affects the church and presses in on the church. But when I hear a, a simple testimony of basically being raised in a Baptist church and then coming to faith in Christ, which is exactly like mine, um, in a kind of humble, non-fireworks driven kind of way, it reminds Mm. me of the power of the gospel.
1: Well, the power of the gospel and also the importance of family, if it had not been for the legacy that my family had Mm. left in this church throughout the years. I mean, Owen, I, I was a fifth generation um in this church. So hmm. I remember my great grandparents attending this church when I was a small boy. Wow. So in the same context, here were my great grandparents, my grandparents, my parents, you know, and then myself. And so it, it it is a legacy that I can trace back, and the, the recognition, even in the current context in which we live, that family means something, and that family unit is the means by which that God often displays His grace and brings us to faith in Christ.
0: And that, that working together of the Church and the family, as you're drawing out, where you have a strong Christian family and God willing, they're rooting you in a strong local church, so so you have the kind of home base. But then the church, you're, in other words, the the family isn't outsourcing discipleship and evangelism to the local church, but the right. family is the center of that. And but then it sees itself effectively working in partnership with the local church, you know, to right. to, to make disciples. You think that's accurate?
1: No, I, absolutely. I think that's accurate. Um, you know, and I, I I hear and see so many parents giving their their young person or their child a choice. You know, oh, well, they have to decide which faith path that they want to follow, and that there's much individuality that they want to instill in their children. No, I was made to go to church, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, th- there was none of this. My mom never came in on a Sunday morning to my bedroom and said, "So." Justin, are you going to church today? It was just assumed that my family, yes, on the Lord's Day, we gather in corporate worship. And so um, I got up. I got ready. I was ready to walk out the door when my parents were ready to walk out the door. But they instilled into me not a... Not a legalistic type of framework in which to operate, but but a a great desire to serve God because I I saw them serve with such humility and joy. I I would see my grandfather drive the church bus and and pick up underprivileged children and bring them and care for them, and they, they were some of my best friends because I was taught that that gospel ministry was something to to be cherished and and something to be loved and then i think that's uh you know the pathway that god chose to use um in in regard to bringing me into ministry and calling me into ministry especially preaching
0: i think your background which again uh, approximates mine as well i was raised in a small rural baptist church in maine um my parents were were there when the doors of the church <clears throat> excuse me of the church building were open, and we were raised to see the local church as a good and noble thing you know and of of course when you 're a kid when you 're a boy, you know you get restless in these sorts of things, and you feel the pull of the world and things like that and i I did for sure, but when you 're raised to see the local church as a good and noble thing, it really does shape you, and I think there 's a kind of there 's a kind of counter movement in evangelicalism that I think is represented by this sort of background that we're, we're discussing and, and sketching, where you, you didn't have some massive form of rebellion against um, the local church—God can still, of course, save you—and uh, and you're not trying to therefore question everything about the church or about preaching or about ministry or about the Word of God. There actually are a lot of young Christians. What I'm trying to say more simply, Dustin, is there actually are a lot of young Christians who like the local church, mm-hmm. um, who who aren't hungry for some new way to be Christian. They simply want a pastor and a local church to help train them and continue training them in faithfulness and, and walking in right. obedience by the power of the gospel in the name of Christ. Do you think that's true?
1: Oh, absolutely. I I think it lends itself to the biblical injunction to all Christians to live a quiet and peaceable life. Sometimes mm-hmm. I, I so envy that when I look back and, and see almost the simplicity of those days of attending and loving the local church, being involved in the local church you know, going to my grandmother's house for Sunday dinner every Sunday. But there seems to be a movement that that just wants to dismiss all tradition mm-hmm. and simply say that the local church is not enough. Your basic, simple Christian life is not enough. Mm-hmm. There must be some sort of social engagement, some, some sort of uh, social commentary uh, that, that's about your life, some sort of activism. And, mm-hmm. and as we're seeing in the current context, that if you're, you're not voicing activism, then you're not living the proper Christian life. I, I don't see this as scripture at all. Um, mm-hmm. well, what I love about the book of Acts, uh, especially uh, Paul going from place to place, and it just simply says he shared the word with them. He shared Jesus. There was a a joyful simplicity about that ministry, and I, I think modern evangelicalism is is just simply saying to to the young Christian now that the local church is not enough. Mm-hmm. But it's my desire in my ministry to say not only is it enough, but it's the only institution for which Christ died. And therefore, we should give our lives and our hearts and our minds and our understanding and our courage and boldness to that institution, because as Charles Spurgeon said, it is indeed the dearest place on earth.
0: Mm -hmm. That's well said. That's very well said. It's almost like we could contemplate a sixth sola, you know, sola ecclesia. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we won't actually, uh, we won't actually propose that to the Reformation Council in the sky. However, you know, it, it does make you think. Like, in other words, the local church really is the place where we are supposed to find joy and happiness. But as you say, on this earth, um, we sometimes don't embrace the anonymous day-to-day grind of the Christian faith. Mm. and we want the spectacular stuff, and we even want our local congregation, you know, to be this kind of ongoing um, revival center continually, and, and it's good to pray for these things and even seek these things, and yet there is such a thing as the ordinary means of grace, there is such a thing as day-to-day glory, you know, in kind of anonymous Christian faithfulness. Another corollary here, Dustin, that I see and that I've seen you really bring out in your in your ministry, is sola scriptura, which is actually one of the five solas, not sola ecclesia, <laughs> which I just added. Um, and I see that conviction in you. What what shaped in your in your background, in your story, such a strong confidence in Scripture alone as our authority?
1: Well, that's a good question. And just thinking and reflecting on that. Um, I will say as a footnote that I think the reason the reformers did not add sola ecclesia to the solas is it almost was just a a given, wasn't it? Mm. I mean, they they were preachers, they were pastors, they were in the context of the local church. The five solas were to be, you know, raised up within that context, and so I'm not sure that they needed to make it clear because it was so clear to them. I think we have lost that lens through which we should view uh, all things. But in regard to the authority of Scripture, I think it was that just daily, um, that uh, weekly uh, setting under the preaching of God's Word. Um, If I told you the name of my pastor growing up, you, you would have no idea who that is. No one on social media would have any idea who that is. But what Jesus said in regard to the last shall become first always rings true in my mind to some of these faithful country preachers in these small churches. If they're being faithful to their calling, if they're being faithful to exposit the word, my goodness, the the crowns will be mounted upon their head in, in the age to come. Mm. And so it was setting under the faithful preaching of God's word that instilled in my heart a love for the scriptures. And then when God called me into ministry at the very young age of 14 years old, I mean, my goodness, what in the world did I know at 14? <laughs> yes. But he was so gracious to me in that Um and all of those early sermons are under lock and key, never <laughs> never to be posted or heard of again. But, you know, even at that young age of 14, I, I desire to commit myself to the study and the preaching and the teaching of God's word because, oh, and it's, it's God's revelation to us. It is God speaking to us. It is his breath, as it were, to us. Mm. How in the world can we preach anything else?
0: Okay, and that's interesting because you and I are two figures who also um, really enjoy historical theology and church history. Um, you, I know you have a, a deep <clears throat> zeal for the world we call Edwardiana. You enjoy all things Jonathan Edwards, <clears throat> as I do, and uh, and the Reformers and the Puritans and Spurgeon. And so how is it you think through— uh, sola Scriptura: The Word of God alone is inspired of the Spirit, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient. If we can pull those things together under Sola Scriptura, how is it you you affirm that commitment and and act upon it as I see it in your ministry, and also have a love for historical theology and church history?
1: Well, I think the two go together, and the the way that they go together is that these men who you are talking about, uh, Edwards and and the rest of the Puritans, uh, we could name names until uh, ad nauseum. Basically, the faithful uh, men and even women of that era, mm-hmm. um, they loved the Bible. And when I read Edwards, what I'm reading is scripture, scripture, scripture.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: When I read Owen, it is scripture, scripture, scripture. And so they were not pulling in things of their current social context or trying to view the Scripture through the lens of culture and interpreting it as we have such an issue in evangelicalism today. But they just took the Scripture and they dedicated themselves to study it, to know it, to preach it, and to proclaim it. And so it's my desire, as it is your desire, Owen, as we've discussed prior to this, is it's to follow in this, and I'll use a Lawson phrase, a Steve Lawson phrase, in this long line of godly men. Mm. And this is a long line. It's it's a long marathon. It's not a sprint, but it's a long, tedious marathon where we are handing the baton of scriptural sufficiency, authority, and errancy, uh, et cetera, down to the next person. And I just feel like Edwards and... Uh, Spurgeon and then Martin Lloyd-Jones and then James Montgomery Boyce and then R.C. Sproul and then John MacArthur and so many others that we could mention have just passed that baton on to us. Mm -hmm. And I want to hold that baton in the greatest humility, understanding that the legacy behind me is one filled with Scripture, 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 so that at my end, the same can be said of me as has been said of them.
0: That's beautifully said dustin that's a It's a bit of an eclectic uh uh tradition isn't it? This kind of scripture driven tradition in other words the the figures you named are not necessarily bound under one creedal document mm. they're not all in one denomination uh, they're not in one place they're not in one century mm. uh and if if you know following Lawson here if we if we go back you know and trace this through Tyndale and and Huss and the Lollards and others, right, all the way back, of course, to the early church. Um, we're going to we're going to note that there's a, a real vibrant eclecticism in mm. this kind of scripture-driven tradition. That's not always a comfortable reality, though, for students. Sometimes we want that kind of narrowly lined-out tradition. I think uh, where where we have you know one one document and one clearinghouse to point to. There are surely numerous documents that inform and speak to and 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 strengthen our faith, and we're th- so thankful for them. But you know, you you add, you you were mentioning like a Lloyd Jones. You could add in Packer there, for example. Mm. When you're driven by a kind of sola scriptura perspective, yes, there there is some definite overlap in this tradition we're talking about—a scripture-driven tradition. But there's a real, I would say healthy and, again, vibrant eclecticism among Anglicans, Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, on and on it goes, non-denominational folks who love the authority of Scripture and who place themselves under it as the supreme, you know, uh, uh, revelatory authority of God.
1: Absolutely. Several things came to mind when you were saying those uh, things— I first think of the authors of Scripture and the eclectic nature of their backgrounds. I mean, my goodness, look at who God has has woven together to reveal himself through Mm -hmm. kings, uh, hymnists, authors, prophets, fishermen, rich men, doctors poor men. I mean, it's unbelievable uh, how he has woven together um, his revelation. And then as I look back upon all these individuals whom we love and study, there's something about a tapestry that God weaves together. We always can't see it in the present age, but it's this beautiful portrait that God is painting of of a gorgeous tapestry of agreement on the fundamental aspects of his revelation through Christ that comes to us as what we know as the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And so it is that preeminent theological understanding of the gospel that weaves all of these people together, even though they will disagree on 10 different points of secondary issues, mm-hmm. that main fundamental Understanding, adherence to the solas of the Reformation is what is driving them in their ministry. The example that I think of most often of two figures that are so diametrically opposed to one another would be George Whitfield and John Wesley. <laughs> and so, living in that same era, Whitfield, a fiery revivalistic, Calvinistic preacher. And then you have Wesley, who is. Not that <laughs> you, you have Wesley that is so opposed to so much of that and to read their exchange and letters in regard to the doctrines of grace are just fascinating. But yet Whitfield preached Wesley's funeral and Whitfield said of Wesley, as Jesus said of John the Baptist, there's not been one born of woman greater than this man. Mm. And so, Even though in disagreement there's a humility, as much of a humility with others that disagree with us as God has given to us in our sin. And so, again, it's a beautiful tapestry that's woven together, and I would dare say that you and I would not agree on everything, Mm -hmm. but in regard to the fundamental truths of Sola Scriptura, Sola Christus, Sola Fide, Sola Deo Gloria, Sola Gratia, we are together, Mm. and we join together to proclaim those things.
0: Yes, yes, well said, well said, brother. Very nice point there as well about the eclectic nature of Scripture. I think that's exactly right. It's funny because when you teach at the seminary level, you're asked from time to time, oh, what's your textbook? What's your textbook for you know sure. theology class or uh, or other classes and I, i'm I'm totally good with with a textbook, a core textbook you know f- for example, in a New Testament introduction class, I could really see that you know being the case or something like that that you would have a core textbook but wh- what I do in my systematic theology classes here at Midwestern Seminary in Kansas City is I will have I will have a bunch of texts that I assign and they're grouped under this kind of Scripture-driven banner, you know, sola scriptura banner. In other words, this isn't a this isn't a total eclecticism with no boundaries. Um, these are these are individuals who are going to affirm, uh, you know, biblical inerrancy and authority, for example. But I actually like exposing my students to a variety of voices within this kind of paradigm, within the evangelical paradigm, uh, to a serious degree, the Reformational paradigm. I think that that's. I think that that's a very helpful thing, the Baptist paradigm. We don't agree about everything, as you said, and yet I think there's something healthy about being able to read widely and deeply. So along those lines, to move the conversation forward, because I'm not doing a good job of walking through your story, I I keep pulling (laughs) off to the side of the road because I'm really interested in what you're saying. Give us, in a condensed form, I guess, three influences uh, putting you on the spot here, but three influences in your life—you know, through your your college years, seminary years, and post seminary years—that have shaped you. Three influences.
1: Um, are you looking for individuals?
0: Yeah, sure, Indi- yeah, living yeah. individuals, I should say. Yes.
1: Oh, current living individuals. That's well, right,
0: mentors, if you will.
1: Yeah, that that's that's interesting. I w- I would say, just as a footnote to give some historical um, kind of influences, of course, Edwards in regard to spirituality and the depth of holiness in the Christian life, Mm -hmm. Spurgeon in regard to preaching. Um, um, just his evangelistic efforts and, and, uh, gospel efforts, Martin Lloyd-Jones and, and the tediousness of expository preaching. Uh, those are some historical influences that that I like to study and, and dedicate myself to. And then of course, you, you know, I had a friend while I was in college prior to me adhering to the doctrines of grace. Um, he handed me a John MacArthur study Bible. And um, he he gave that to me as a gift. And he just said, read Romans and read the notes of Romans. And so I did. And then after I read Romans, uh, that's when I uh, finally surrendered to uh, a complete biblical understanding of the doctrines of grace. But I I would say uh, probably preeminently, maybe more than any living person, John MacArthur has by distance Uh, And I've only met him a few times. He wouldn't know me uh, basically from Adam, as it were. But um, uh, probably he has had the most influence upon me and my thinking, my dedication to scripture, my desire to have an expository ministry, uh, preaching ministry, that is. Obviously, Steve Lawson has had a great impact on me. I had the great privilege of being at his church at Christ Fellowship Baptist Church in Mobile, Alabama, uh, as an associate pastor. And then when he retired from pastoral ministry, took up uh, kind of the mantle of uh, interim preaching pastor for for a little while at that church. He continues to have an influence on me. We have a great friendship and relationship um, uh, particularly in fountain pens and and other <laughs> uh, basic, really good preacher things like that, and then probably you know uh, a third, uh, perhaps even a fourth, uh, RC Sproul uh, helping me to think philosophically through issues, ethically through issues. Uh, but yet doing it in a way that serves the local church, serves um, those who attend Sunday school more than those who attend the seminary. Hmm. So that, that has been a, a great influence upon me and then perhaps one publication house uh the banner of truth of course uh how how could one uh not say that they have influenced them in regard to their uh, puritan writings and and publication of really great books ian murray's biography of jonathan edwards probably mm-hmm. impacted me more personally than any biographical work that i've read mhm so I know that's kind of a regurgitation, but those are some of the major influences of, of my ministry and the trajectory of what I want to do as a minister of the gospel.
0: Oh, that's very helpful. When did you get a vision for the work that you're entering uh, right about now, uh, being a provost of uh, Union School of Theology in Wales? When did it first occur to you, hey, I could I could help lead a school? I mean, I say this from that kind of shared background to a degree, coming from myself, a rural uh, church. I didn't even know what a seminary was, to be honest with right. you. Now I serve in one. Uh, it it kind of dawns over time for a lot of us that there is such a thing as a seminary, and you can serve in it, and it can actually be a, a force multiplier for gospel ministry. W- where did you get this vision of of teaching and
1: Well. I think it was Michael Haken, who was my Ph.D. supervisor at Southern Seminary, that uh, really instilled a love in me for academics and intellectual work and the academy, or the Christian academy, I should say. Mm -hmm. Um, He really feels like, um, and I have seen this in his life, that— his calling to be a Christian historian is actually as much of a valid calling as one would have to mission work or to pastoral ministry.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And so it, it almost was under his kind of supervision that for me, it became okay to serve in the Academy and not feel that I was doing something less in the kingdom of Christ. Um, Mm -hmm. So it, it, it It almost gave me permission to launch out into looking for something of training men and women as it were for uh, gospel ministry and then, in regard particularly to union, um it was hearing Michael Reeves, who is the president. Uh, for your listeners, he has a fantastic book on the Trinity as a footnote, just glorious book on the Trinity. But anyway, Michael Reeves and hearing his understanding of what a, a Christian institution, a theological institution should be in regard to its um, joining hands and locking arms with the local church and how church centered union is. That's when I just said, I'm on board hmm. and whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. <laughs> um, if that means leaving the school, if that means teaching at the school or whatever, I'll do it. And so when they first approached me to, to, uh let me know they were considering me for this position, I told my wife, there's absolutely no way that, you know, I don't have a chance in the world of of even continuing in conversation about this. But as we mutually shared our hearts together, both Mike and myself, We understood that, you know, together we have this same mind in regard to our love for the local church and our love for training men to put in pulpits in the local church that will lead uh, the next generation. Mm. And so here I am, and that's just how how God led in His providence.
0: You know, I think that's very interesting, uh, your discussion of uh, initially feeling like maybe you needed almost permission, you know— Justification to be in the theological academy and not the local church.
1: Well, oh, and I had grown up probably much as you had. I had not heard of the seminary. I, I didn't even know there was a training institution for men <laughs> as as a small boy. But then it became all the more, you know, obvious to me that as I began to be in ministry, that you know, this is a calling, and God calls people to particular things, not just to mission work and to being a pastor. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- those were the two individual things that I had grown up thinking that God called people to, and He does, but He also calls to b- to be teachers. He calls evangelists. Yes. He calls so many other individuals uh, to be in His work, and so th- th- that's what I mean when I almost had to get kind of permission to say, hey, to go into the Academy is not a second-class calling. It is a legitimate calling by which God brings you into contact with frontline men who who, who, who need to be trained to go out and be warriors in the church.
0: Mm-hmm. It's funny yeah. how it can be easy to either underplay the academy, the theological academy. We mean that actually serves the local church and loves the local yes. church, not as exalting yes. itself over it, or overplay it underplay the academy or overplay it and you see both in the evangelical world you see some people who essentially wave their hand at seminaries then you see people who uh you you see students who you know sit under professors and and enjoy learning from them praise god for that but then they they think oh that's what that's what i should do if you know and and we want to be very clear that it's a it's a Good calling. We're thankful for it, but the the front lines work. The the major role is that of the pastor theologian. Um, even as we don't want to underplay uh, the the goodness of the role, so it's it's a real challenge yes. there. Yes. In in well, a I think
1: that's that's what that's what led me to Union. There's something interesting in the United Kingdom, in the British context, uh, in the Welsh context, the Scottish context. There's a desire to place the pastor theologian as the preeminent front lines battleground, which I so appreciate. Yes. And then undergirding that is the academy, is church planting, is evangelism, is all of these other entities in the U.S. I think probably we used to have that. But now I feel like the intellectual has taken that place. Mm. Very sadly, I think the academy is trying in many aspects to usurp the church's authority and role Mm. in saying that we as the academy – and I've been in the academy for quite some time, the theological institutions – uh, placing ourselves above the local church, saying the local pastor kind of needs to stay in their lane, mm-hmm. stay, you know, visiting the sick and visiting the widows. But we are the ones that will intellectually lead the church. Yes, And so I think that's a mistake. I think, I think we do not see that in Scripture. God did not send Christ to die for, for the seminary. Mm-hmm. He sent Christ to die for the church. And and so we just need to have that perspective. That's why I so appreciate um, your understanding of what a pastor theologian is and trying to merge those two and being about the Church, even in the writing and teaching of intellectualism.
0: Thank you, brother. That's kind. Well, we, we need to... Um... We need to wrap up that those last comments were really rich. We could talk about that for a whole podcast just about how seminaries can strengthen local churches in an appropriate way but mm-hmm. not usurp them. That's a very important point. I'm thankful to hear it from you. We theologians should never, you know, see ourselves as the true uh arbiters of doctrine. Um, Mm. That role has already been taken, actually, (laughs) Uh, been appointed by Christ to pastors. Uh, Before we wrap up, you've had recently a book come out with Nate Pickowitz, uh, The American Puritans, and uh, you have another book that you've just said publicly is under contract with Crossway and the local church. Could you just give my my hearers uh, a quick uh, take on those two projects?
1: Yeah. So the American Puritans co-authored with uh, our friend Nate Pickowitz, a pastor up in New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. Uh, the book examines nine key figures of that era just after the Pilgrim landing in at Plymouth. Uh, we're looking at what we call the American Puritans. Some would argue with that title. That'll be for another podcast. <laughs> but we're looking at William Bradford, John Winthrop, John Cotton, Thomas Hooker, Thomas Shepard, Ann Bradstreet, John Elliott, and several other individuals who we affectionately affectionately call the forgotten Puritans. So we know all of the English names, John Owen, John Bunyan, you know, Richard Baxter, all of those, but so often we forget the contribution of those that came to the new world uh, seeking religious freedom and were basically the first founders of this country. Mm. And so we're looking biographically at their lives. We're not looking theologically necessarily. Uh, we're looking at a bit of their spirituality and their ministry their pastoral labors, their writings, um, and they make significant contributions uh, that we need to make ourselves aware of. So that's the American Puritans. And so The book that I've just signed with Crossway to do is actually going to be in a uh, series of books that is being kind of published under or under the auspices of Union School of Theology um, Hmm. uh, by Crossway. The first book uh, that will be coming out fairly soon um, is a book by Mike Reeves on the fear of God, Um, and then myself, I will be doing the book on the church desiring. Uh, the working title right now is The Dearest Place on Earth, which is actually uh, a Spurgeon uh, definition of the church. Mm. And then a subtitle is The Beauty and Loveliness of the Church. I think we've lost our uh, affection for the church, as it were, to use an Edwardsian phrase. Mm-hmm. Um we we look at the church as a business. We look at the church as a corporation, and, and we run it accordingly. But we've lost something of the, the deep abiding affection that shepherds should have for the sheep. And so I'm looking at God the Father in the church, God the Son in the church, God the Spirit in the church, uh, this kind of Trinitarian work, hmm. and how out of that – uh, flows a love and an affection that shepherds should have for the sheep. And so um, it, hopefully it'll be interesting. We'll see. Hopefully it'll be helpful. Uh, I do pray that it is. And then also in that series is two more works. Um, That I'll not speak on now, because some of that has not been decided. But it's actually going to be a larger work, and then out of that is going to come a concise edition. And so maybe pastors or preachers would want to read that kind of larger piece, and then perhaps they would want their elders or their deacons, their church members to read more the concise edition. And so actually two works will be published out of that.
0: Fantastic, Dustin. Well, brother, I am so thankful for your ministry. Uh, it heartens me. I've said this to you. It, this isn't puffery. It heartens me on a regular basis. I'm thankful for it. It's, it's a joy to work with you, hands at the plow together at Reformanda Ministries, uh, six mm. of us there, uh, not appointing ourselves uh, the next the next key leaders or something like this. We are not the ones we've been waiting for, but just six friends who are trying to, uh, to promote sound doctrine, who are trying to promote uh, sola scriptura in our era and a kind of reformational vision of life and ministry. So, It's a joy to partner with you there, and uh, it's been a lot of fun talking with you today. Thank you for coming on the podcast.
1: Well, thank you, Owen, for the invitation. Uh, We could talk about these things the rest of the day, but they're (laughs) glorious subjects, and thank you for your work as well, both at Midwestern, uh, with me at Reformanda, and it's just such a joy and pleasure to serve with men who are just faithfully plodding along, and so we shall be workmen in the field until he comes.
0: Very well said. God bless you. Thanks for listening to City of God, a podcast at the Center for Public Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. We're so thankful you stopped by. We encourage you to continue to join the conversation at cpt.mbts.edu, the official website of the center. And we encourage you to follow us on Twitter and Facebook as well. Join us in coming days as we continue the conversation on what it means to be the city of God in the city of man.